For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Five female Republican lawmakers are calling on GOP Labor Commissioner candidate Sean Roberts to drop out of the race. This comes after allegations emerge about the Hominy Republican representative allegedly abusing and mistreating his ex-wife. Roberts is heading to a runoff election against incumbent Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne in less than two weeks. Neva, should Roberts step down from this race? Well, he's obviously not going to step down from this <laughs> race. I mean, what this was, was a, it, it, every indication it was an attempt to get information out that had not really been in the kind of public arena about about uh, these allegations and mm. things that are in court documents that happened a couple of decades ago. And many people, you know, have made the comment that that was a long time ago, it shouldn't matter. But I think what you have is not only these uh, female legislators coming forward, but many others saying it doesn't matter the time frame. What matters is what the allegations were, what took place. And when you begin to look at it, I mean, you have a situation where you had a, had a divorce and you had, this was back in 2003, his ex-wife, um, and there were, there were uh, domestic um, abuse complaints. There, there, uh, one of them at the time when she was pregnant, a number of things in those uh, records and documents, if you read them, certainly uh, indicate that it is information that uh, a lot of folks believe should be taken into account during this mm. campaign season. So uh, it's swinging back and forth, and clearly you have uh, the last days before a runoff, um, you have Sean Roberts kind of fighting to overcome what has been out now uh, and trying to say that basically his his campaign is saying that his ex-wife has no problems. They've uh, had a, a letter come uh, out uh, that they say she is saying that uh, he's a good guy, basically. But uh, a lot more questions than answers, I think, that have uh, now swirled around in the campaign as a result of these allegations. Ryan. Well, these aren't just any five women in the legislature. These right. are five Republican women and, and powerful women in the legislature. And so I think that you know part of this statement was to demonstrate to voters that not all Republicans are in lockstep here. And they felt they needed to do that, uh, I believe, because Governor Stitt has doubled down on his endorsement of Sean Roberts for uh, labor commissioner. I mean, he's hosting a fundraiser for him. You know, he's and so there's there's a, a concern that it becomes this idea that, that to be a partisan loyalist here, you need to follow the governor and you need to vote for Roberts and you need to you know vote against Leslie Osborne. And I think that these women were saying, no, that is not the case at all. And there is clearly not a unified uh, Republican leadership or establishment movement against Leslie Osborne. There are plenty of folks in the Republican establishment that are supporting her. And one of the and there are plenty of independents supporting her, Democrats that are waiting to be able to vote for her in the in the general election, uh, and that's because she's just done a good job. You know, mm -hmm. she's she has done her job as labor commissioner. And all of the attacks on Leslie Osborne find one that is an attack on her performance as labor commissioner uh, that has anything to do with any of the functions that the labor commission does. Um, you know, so going back to that. Some of the, if you parse through uh, the language here, you know, there's this, what, what hasn't happened is there hasn't really been a repudiation by Sean Roberts' ex-wife that um, the statements that she made in these two decades old court filings uh, weren't true. You know, you know, she made those statements. When you file those with a court, you file them under oath. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, 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 you know, th those are sworn statements that you submit to a court. Um, and she has never come out and said, I didn't mean those things whenever I said them or 
uh, you know, I, I perjured myself, whatever that may be. You know, she hasn't done that. I, don't, I haven't really heard Sean Roberts speak to the you know, direct allegations in the court documents themselves. You know, I do think that it is two decades ago. But if you're going to have those out there, you need to be able to either demonstrate, one, that they're false. And two, if you can't demonstrate that they're false, that you have worked on becoming a better person since then. Neither of those things have happened in this. And I, I think that, um, you know, on a straight up and down issue, Leslie Osborne, not just because of this, but because of the job that she's done as labor commissioner, probably wins this primary. Well, and I think let, let's point out, too, I mean, it, we talk about that it's two decades old. That is true. But in these protective orders, I mean, you have you have some things that um, do shed some light on what, what was occurring, at least at that time. And I think that uh, her allegations, his ex-wife, uh, in the court filings, saying that uh, he pushed her, slapped her, kicked her, even when she was pregnant, um, made, making allegations that he threatened to kill himself and her uh, if she filed for divorce. Uh, many, of, many of these things are very concerning in, in those court documents. And I think beyond that, we have a situation where if you look further, uh, just recently, in recent years, 2012, I believe it was, she asked the court, the ex-wife, to modify the co-parenting plan because she believed that the children, A, didn't want to come to Oklahoma to spend the summer, and B, that the, she believed the environment in the father's home was not suitable for mm. the boys. So, I mean, these are things that uh, once they're out there, I mean, clearly I think folks are going to uh, kind of sit up and pay attention to. And I think there's no question that all of this will have um, uh, will have impact on, on this particular election in the runoff. Well, and Sean Roberts seems to think that Leslie Osborne has, has put this out there. You know, whenever he responds to these uh, to these questions about his past, you know, he almost always defaults to, you know, you know, attacking Leslie Osborne instead of addressing the issues and, and really attacking the fact that maybe Leslie Osborne put these things out there. Well, one, there's no evidence of that. Two, these are public records. You're running for a statewide office. You got to expect that at the very least journalists are going to you know, search your name uh, on, on the case uh, search file on OSCN and see if these things are out there. So, you know, this this idea that this is a setup uh, or a conspiracy against him just really doesn't hold water. And it, again, if you're talking about all of those things, you're not addressing the allegations that are direct, uh, directly made against you under oath in court documents uh, that have never been repudiated, to my understanding. Well, and Sean Roberts continued to say, I mean, through the course of this in the last uh, several days, that this was kind of the politics of personal destruction was what uh, the term that they used in one of the press releases and goes on to throw out that this is kind of the same thing of being sing singled out just like, you know, Donald Trump and uh, Justice Kavanaugh and I think Justice Thomas were the three examples he used. And yet he turns around in another press release and basically has this character assassination not only of his opponent but uh, of his of the opponent's uh, campaign personnel and other folks consultants and other and others so I think um, I think we're in a political season you're right Ryan anyone to assume that anything in your past as we tell any, any yeah. candidate thinking about running for office or is running for office you can expect that if it's out there, it's likely to come out, and it will come out sooner than later and oftentimes in the closing stretch of an election. And for all these folks that love Donald Trump, they don't follow Donald Trump's advice of either just, you know, outright deny or just accept it and say whatever. You know, I mean, that's that's the thing is that, you know, Donald Trump, for, for whatever you want to say about the guy, he has whenever he's attacked on things that he did in the past, uh, you know, he just deflects it and, and doesn't doesn't pay it a lot of a mind, uh, attention. And will even lie just outright. And so that's, you know, for the folks that follow Trump, I don't understand why they don't follow that playbook. 
American Civil Liberties Union of Oklahoma is citing the recent downgrading of the accreditation of Tulsa Public Schools in its challenge against the law to limit instruction on subjects related to race and gender. Attorneys say House Bill 1775 is vague and can stifle protected speech. Ryan, does the ACLU have a case here? I think they have a much stronger case than they did before. You know, before uh, the ACLU's attack on House Bill 1775 uh, was really this idea that there was no way in which a court uh, or a state agency um, could implement this that was constitutional, that met constitutional scrutiny. Um, and now that we've begun to see the state through the State Department of Education, you know, largely at the, I think, at the impetus of uh, Secretary Ryan Walters and, and the governor, begin to punish schools uh, and deliver actual punishments like the downgrade and accreditation to Tulsa Public Schools, now you have real instances of the law being used to punish people. And so I think that as that turns it into an as-applied challenge in addition to what's considered mm-hmm. a facial challenge that you know just challenges it across the board. And in that as-applied challenge, I think that there's a very strong case here. When you begin to read House Bill 1775 um, and you want to understand what am I supposed to do uh, to comply with this law, uh, the, there's really not a lot there. I mean, you, I, I've read this thing I don't know how many times. And you can read a lot of it is just nonsense uh, and, you know, just kind of platitudes that I think a lot of people can agree with. But the, the real effective language in this is just so muddled and so poorly written that it doesn't really give guidance to teachers. It doesn't give guidance to superintendents, principals, whomever that may be as to what is and isn't allowed. And that's just frankly unconstitutional. The, the 14th Amendment requires notice of what's expected of you. And that notice has to be plain so that, you know, that a person of average intelligence can understand what is expected of them under the law. That's certainly not the case with House Bill 1775. And now that we've begun to see these actual enforcement measures coming out, uh, I think that uh, and hope that federal courts will move swiftly uh, to begin considering these, especially the vagueness challenges uh, against 1775. Neva. Well, I think I think that the courts will decide ultimately, and it's unfortunate that we have legislation that uh, it has all of these questions and has all of these issues uh, that have to now be uh, determined by a court. I mean, uh, and you're right, Ryan. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of folks think House Bill 1775 is all about critical race theory, and yet those words are never, uh, they're, they're nowhere in the, in the actual bill. And so uh, we talked about it earlier, you know, in, this, in the session this past year mm-hmm. where, I mean, this was an attempt to ban teaching that one race or gender was uh, inherently superior. That was kind of the phraseology and what the attempt, uh, the upshot of 1775 was. But in the effort to be able to have something that the school districts across Oklahoma and the State Department of Education can enforce, can uh, comply with, I mean, I think now we have all these questions and we have all of these uh, issues coming forward from various school districts. And uh, frankly, it would be the public and education in general would be well served to have this uh, have this resolution sooner rather than later so that they can move forward and not continue to just pile up more litigation before we get these answers resolved. Well, and you, in the meantime, you have uh, teachers making decisions that that I, I don't think they need to do in order to comply with the law and you know, pulling things off of the uh, off of the curriculum. I, I you know we've heard about you know teachers not wanting to teach to kill a mockingbird. There was some uh, some talk of of other books even more recently in this uh, in this last week that they were pulling from curriculums. I don't think that those things violate the law. I mean the the law 
in that regard, you know, one of the, the key piece of it that a lot of people have focused on, and, and I think is is not necessarily the, the biggest failure in, in the way that the law is drafted, but they focus on this idea of, you know, does it make someone feel uh, uncomfortable? Well, you know, the way that you, that's written isn't, you know, if I read something and I feel uncomfortable, that doesn't violate the law. It's if I read something as a student and maybe I don't express enough discomfort and the teacher comes over and says, you have to feel uncomfortable about this. You have to feel guilty about this because of your race, because of your gender, um, because of your socioeconomic status. That would violate the law. Absolutely. Uh, but, but just, you know, reading something that's disturbing uh, and, and, and provoking and maybe even provocative, that doesn't violate the law. What does violate the 14th Amendment across the board, though, is this this idea that it does not, uh, in, in its very basic premise, give a sense of what is and isn't uh, allowed. Mm-hmm. The student administration is suing a Florida company in its handling of COVID education money. The lawsuit charges a class wallet of breach of contract and negligence and or fraudulent misrepresentation. This comes after a federal audit found while the money administered by the Department of Education was properly managed, $31 million under Governor Stitt's office was improperly spent and lacked documentation. Neva, what are your thoughts on this lawsuit? Well, I mean, there are a number of things, obviously, that are starting to come out. I mean, the federal audit itself directs attention to the Secretary of Education, who is Brian Walters, um, and, and talks about uh, that he was involved in choosing Class Wallet. Uh, this was when he was a private citizen. There's kind of been this back and forth of, mm-hmm. you know, I, it wasn't on my watch or was it on my watch? But, you know, when he was with um, uh, was he when he was with the private nonprofit I mean he also as executive director of that group every kid counts Oklahoma he was instrumental in, in ensuring that class wallet had a sole source no bid uh, contract with the state to do this work so I think what we have is now dueling litigation from both sides uh, teeing it up and I think it's fascinating that one of the things that uh, uh, the state uh, says they're suing the company over was the fact that they didn't have uh, kind of proper uh, mechanisms in place to be able to have uh, security settings and be able to um, avoid some of the things that are now in question in terms of the use of the monies. However, the audit you know, indicates that uh, it was Secretary Walters who declined the use of those uh, security settings, which would have, in fact, prevented in their estimation what they say in their filings that the Bridge the Gap funds uh, that were being directed, um, that there would not have been this ability for them to use these multi-line retailers, the Walmarts and the, the Home Depots and, and the places where many of these items now in question uh, that the feds and this audit are saying are not, uh, you know, were not properly spent and could potentially put the state at risk of having to uh, pay those monies back. All of this now is kind of the give and take of who tries to come up on top. And the and the backdrop to all of this is we have political season going on where the governor's running for re-election. Ryan Walters is running for secretary of education or superintendent of public instruction while he's still the cabinet secretary. So you've got a, a, very, conf- a very blurred uh, screen here with a lot of things going on. And I think the interesting thing will be how the public really kind of takes all of this into account and how they react to that, not only in the runoff where Ryan Walters is running uh, on August 23rd against April Grace, but beyond as we get into the fall campaign. Right. I think that this is a political uh, you know, diversion tactic. I think that you know, filing this lawsuit 
Uh, really, in terms of the, the legal merit of it, it remains to be seen. But I, I think that filing it right now is the state administration uh, and Secretary Walter's ability, whenever they're asked about class wallet, to be able to say, well, we're suing these guys. You know, we, we, we so disagreed with the federal audit, and we feel that the, the blame really belongs to class wallet, that we've, we have sued them uh, in state court. And, and that's, you know, that's, uh, that's just happening now. I, I, I would just advise, be careful what you ask, what you wish for in a situation like this, because even though most of the discovery, if not all of the discovery in this matter will take place after the election, it will happen. Uh, unless the state of Oklahoma just you know decides to dismiss the lawsuit uh, sometime in December when everybody's asleep and thinking about the new year and we're, we're just, you know, the media's uh, maybe on vacation or something like that. If it's not dismissed, um, we move into discovery on this thing and, and you could have Secretary Walters, maybe then Superintendent of Public Instruction Walters, uh, either an incumbent governor or you know a recently defeated governor that could be deposed in these matters. And uh, the discovery request from Classwallet, I think, would be pretty extensive. Uh, and the federal government has already done a lot of that work for them with this audit. So I think you got to be really careful what you wish for in a situation like this, because unless you are just absolutely certain that it wasn't the state at fault here, uh, as the audit suggests, for the mismanagement of nearly $30 million and the uh, ultimate return of millions of dollars that the state couldn't even figure out how to use. Um, that's, unless you're really certain, I don't bring this case. You know, I, I think that, you know, you just, you, you keep talking about it and divert it and you maybe even say, hey, listen, you know, it was, it was COVID. We were all moving fast. We were doing our best. Mistakes were made. We're, we were learning um, and kind of own up to that stuff. But that doesn't really seem to be you know, part of the, the political uh, mindset these days is, you know, kind of owning up to your mistakes and saying that you've learned a lesson. But, you know, when, when that happens, I think that it feeds into, and I think we'll talk later about, you know, Stitt's approval rating, Governor Stitt's approval ratings. Um, I think that it feeds into that idea. And being able to say that there's a lawsuit doesn't really help, I don't think. In fact, a new poll finds Governor Stitt's approval rating has dropped 12 points since January. In the survey from Change Research, 57% of more than 2,000 likely voters say the word corrupt describes the governor well. The poll also finds 42% of respondents will vote for Stitt in re-election, with 34% backing State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister and 14% undecided. Ryan, what happened here? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that's happened is that you've had an unprecedented amount of money spent against Governor Stitt. Um, you know, I've got to imagine that the amount of money that's been spent against him at this point is probably greater than $10 million. Do you think that that's right, Neva? I would think so. Uh, yeah. And so, and just to put that in some perspective, there hasn't been a single gubernatorial campaign that I'm aware of that's even raised $10 million themselves, let alone have that much money spent against them. So, uh, you, know, ha you know, spending $10 million and, and you know, targeted campaign ads uh, an organization against a governor who has, you know, for all intents and purposes, had a bunch of bad headlines, you know, that, that otherwise would have just maybe evaporated into the background. But if you've got millions of dollars behind them to make sure that voters are thinking about these things and then trying to put them in this perspective of corruption or cronyism, uh, that, that ultimately works. And there's probably tens of millions more to be spent against the governor moving into the fall. Um, I think that what this says is that this could be a, a legitimate campaign for governor. You know, it's not a shoe in for the Republican nominee uh, as it, as it uh, has been for, for many cycles in the past. Um, the big question that, that I think remains is why is Irvin Yin in this race? And 
Uh, can Joy Hoffmeister overcome the amount of votes that Irvin Yen is taking uh, out? Um, and, you know, for Irvin Yen, uh, you know, former state senator uh, running for governor, he's running primarily because he, from what I understand, disagreed with the governor's handling of COVID. Well, I think that Superintendent Hoffmeister would probably handle COVID the way that Irvin Yen would want would handle a future pandemic. Um, and if Yen stays in the race and continues to draw votes, he may be a spoiler and help Governor Stitt get reelected. So that, you know, it's really, why is Irvin Yen in this race? And then second, if I'm Governor Stitt, um, uh, you know, I look at that 14% of undecided and it's like, man, I've been governor for four years and you still don't know whether you like me or you don't like me. If I'm Joy Hoffmeister, I look at that 14% undecided and I say, that's room, that's opportunity uh, to grow my uh, margin here and make this a really competitive race moving into the fall. Neva. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this this survey, I mean, uh, obviously, you always look at who the who the polling firm is that does the survey. This is a, a, San, a San Francisco firm, uh, primarily uh, doing Democrat uh, races. So um, they obviously are looking at this. And the results that, that you talk about, Ryan, I mean, first of all, I mean, when you talk about the other folks in the race, I mean, we get past the, the 42 um, 42% for uh, uh, Stead and the 34% for Hoffmeister that was in that poll. I mean, actually, Irvin Yen <laughs> ran fourth. I mean, right. it was yeah. the Libertarian uh, that had 6% and Yen, I think, had 4%. So, uh, you know, the th- those folks are, you know, they're not factors at this point, obviously, in, in the race, but they do peel off votes that uh, you could argue which direction they go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the undecideds at this point being as low as it was on this particular survey, I mean, I think you have to say, if this is an online survey, you are looking at folks that are probably a little better uh, informed and, you know, may have uh, stronger opinions at this point. But I think the, the, the takeaway, I think, was the first point that was made in that uh, their indication is that the governor's numbers uh, have dropped uh, in in the past year as a result of all of what you just described in terms of kind of the onslaught of uh, negative that he's uh, endured. But I think this this idea that uh, corrupt is the word that describes him. You would have to wonder whether that really um, w- whether that's really a valid point at at this juncture. And the reason is, I mean, first of all, he's holding um, he's holding his Republicans. And so the folks that you're getting that number off of are folks that are clearly uh, opposed to him at the get-go. So if that's something that can be uh, utilized in a fall campaign, I think that remains to be seen. I think they probably were testing that and trying to see. Uh, but the other, the, the other thing in the survey that I thought was a little uh, curious was the fact that they suggest that uh, corruption in government was the highest per- the highest issue on the kind of the minds of the voters in Oklahoma. And I've seen no survey uh, this year or at any time that suggests that that's the case right now in the political landscape in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, you would have to say that typically you would see uh, the economy and inflation has, has, has moved up. Oftentimes education's at the forefront, but just given where we are and where we've been this past summer with uh, uh, soaring uh, rates at every turn, I think that uh, it does kind of beg the question of uh, are they looking to kind of create a, 
a narrative for a fall campaign and testing those messages. And we'll have to see if these numbers really continue to come out from other pollsters and other mm-hmm. survey research. And, and we see a trend develop, or is this just something that is kind of a, uh, a place in the road where we see this information at this point in time? And that's probably what they're, you know, when you look at that poll, and I haven't, I don't know if they've released the entire poll, and I haven't looked at it, but you've got to imagine that when you I, I agree with you that if you just ask a, a regular Oklahoman on the street right now what's going on, they're going to talk about gas prices, inflation. Uh, that's that's really on top of mind. Right. I imagine that in this poll, probably what happened is they read a series of things about the the state administration and uh, you know Swadley's barbecue and all of the all of the things that have kind of unfolded there, and said after hearing all of this, would you would you say that corruption right. is uh, that's and but that isn't for nothing because. Uh, that messaging then helps them understand, all right, well, if we tell people about this enough, then corruption does become a, a motivating factor for them after they've heard this messaging. And there's not going to be any shortage of funds uh, to deliver that message between now and November. And a lot of that money, from my understanding, is not its not necessarily just you know liberal uh, East and West Coast money coming in to try to beat a conservative governor in Oklahoma. Uh, a lot of that money is being spent by Republicans in Oklahoma or raising money, Republicans raising money in Oklahoma to be spent against the governor. And that's why you saw a lot of that money in the primary uh, being spent. It wasn't to you know defeat him in the primary necessarily, but to soften him up. Uh, so moving into the general. So there's not going to be any shortage of cash. We're going to see a record amount of money spent just on this race itself. Uh, buckle your, uh, your, your seatbelts. If, if you don't like watching campaign ads, you might just you know, turn off your TV between now and now. Because I, <laughs> I've got to think that every And block, your social media social and your media, phones yeah, everything's and your texting bought. and everything. Everything's <laughs> been bought. You know, I, I've, I've got a campaign that I'm working on right now. Uh, and, you know, if we get to the point where we're having to do media buys, I'm just, you know, pulling my hair out because it's like, is there going to be anything left to buy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the other things talking about the whole issue of corruption and, and what was in that survey, there was a question uh, in that survey that said that uh, was asking basically were voters more or less likely to vote for someone who had signed an anti-corruption pledge. And Hoffmeister has signed an anti-corruption pledge. The governor, uh, to my knowledge, at least I've not seen anything that indicates that he has at this point. And so they, one of the uh, questions clearly in that survey was trying to track kind of where the intensity was on that and whether they could use that uh, obviously as a, uh, as a key plank or a key platform point uh, in the fall campaign. So I think we're beginning to see some messaging roll out and some things develop as we get close to finishing up a runoff and now getting ready to run into the fall campaign. Attorney General John O'Connor is denying a request for a near for a hearing in the case of death row inmate Richard Glossop. This comes after 61 lawmakers wrote a letter asking him to hear the new evidence, which could prove his innocence. Glossop faces a final hearing in the State Court of Criminal Appeals before a scheduled execution date on September 22nd. Neva, why is O'Connor fighting against this request from more than a third of state lawmakers? Well, I mean, first of all, it's not uh, it's not the role of state lawmakers to uh, uh, to you know to uh, make these decisions. They can advance the ask, but I think what he said was while he um, while he respects their opinion, uh, he he believes that it is the Court of Criminal Appeals uh, that is the uh, uh, the place where this uh, where this needs to be resolved. So um, again, it's interesting that lawmakers uh, in larger and larger numbers seem to be weighing into some of these uh, matters when it comes to uh, either um, 
uh, cases on death row or other things. Uh, but I think what we have is that the legislature pro- largely has changed the whole dynamic of this by, you know, by their actions in recent years and what they've done in terms of legislation. And the governor ultimately needs to be the final say on this. I mean, when it gets down to a, a stay of execution, but now we have all of these kind of complicating factors that continue to be thrown in there. And I think uh, in this instance, I mean, we've got a situation where, um, you know, Richard Glossop has been, you know, he's been in prison since 1997. He was, he, he was convicted and, or convicted, I guess it was in 1998, but he also was retried and reconvicted in 2004. So he's been on death row 25 years. I think uh, we'll see what happens with uh, uh, all of these uh, legal maneuvers and attempts. But uh, again, we're kind of, we're getting into these kind of competing issues of uh, a conversation about whether or not someone believes in the death penalty versus uh, uh, trying to stop an execution on death row. Ryan. Well, and, you know, these aren't just, you know, Democratic, uh, you know, left-wing lawmakers that, you know, want to abolish the death penalty. You know, these are uh, Republican lawmakers, by by in large part, that signed on to this letter, that spearheaded this letter. Representative Kevin McDougal has really been one of the leaders uh, in, in pushing this and trying to free Richard Glossop. I mean, he genuinely believes that Richard Glossop is innocent, as do I, and that, you know, he should, it would be a travesty for the state of Oklahoma to execute an innocent person, uh, knowing what we know about Richard Glossop's case. Uh, Representative McDougal will tell you, I'm pro-death penalty. You know, I'm for uh, uh, capital punishment. Um, But he said, if the state moves forward and executes Richard Glossop, his, I think that his faith in the system and the system's ability to get it right will be so shaken at that point that he said that he will move forward with legislation to abolish the, de- the death penalty in the state of Oklahoma and to have a Republican member of the legislature who has a lot of colleagues that have supported him in this mission say that out loud, I think is, is a real turning point in the politics of, of the death penalty in the, in the state of Oklahoma. Not do you believe that it should happen, but really a question of can it work? Uh, and that's where I think that this is going to be different. I do think it's, uh, I, I understand what the attorney general is saying, but the court of criminal appeals, the facts that they're going to review are the facts that are presented to them. You know, the court of criminal appeals doesn't have investigators. They aren't able to go out and, and look at this. An international law firm, uh, has looked at this and they said that no reasonable juror could knowing what they were uncovered could come to the conclusion that Richard Glossop is guilty. I think that what this letter is asking the state to do is to replicate that investigation at the state level. The attorney general may say that he doesn't have to do that, but there's nothing preventing him from doing that. And his office has every means and resource available to them to do that. And they could certainly, uh, with that blueprint, have something done before Richard Glossop's execution date next, next month. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.